Dash Radio presents Vinyl Crisis. On LA's west side, a group of avid and devoted vinyl collectors scour the remaining handful of locally owned record shops for the rarest of original vinyl to bring you music you won't hear on any other radio platform. None of it is digital. This is how music was meant to be enjoyed. This is Vinyl Crisis. Guys, welcome back to another Vinyl Crisis. Uh, we have a very special guest coming up. How are you today, Vic? I'm wonderful. I'm very excited about talking to our guest. I'm pumped. We're going to find out more uh, after we hear this track.
Well, Vic, what an absolutely serendipitous opening to the show. Absolutely. Some of the most powerful seminal music ever made in American culture. Uh, 1969 Karma, written by Pharrell Sanders. And that was the, uh, obviously there are only a couple of tracks on this this record. This is the first track, uh, The Creator Has a Master Plan. Yeah, absolutely. I think track one is about 32 minutes and change, and track two is around the same time. They alternated basses. I think besides track one and track two, we're talking to the basses from track one today. Okay, fantastic. Well, that's uh, exactly what I wanted to get to. So uh, we're just going to check he's there with us on the line. Mr. Richard Davis, are you there, sir? Richard, how are you today? Yeah. Fine, thanks. How are you doing? Oh, we are doing fantastically. We're actually over the moon to be talking to one of our favourite and most celebrated bass players, the Professor of Bass, no less. And um, so, where are you based right now, sir? Are you in? Are you in your Wisconsin locale? Yes, I live in Wisconsin. Excellent. <clears throat> and how is how are things today? Everything good? Everything's fine. Wonderful. Well, we were just checking out the track you played on the Farrah Sanders record, Karma. Can you tell us a little bit about that session? It was a, it's, The output is fantastic and seminal. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that was like to record? It was one of the best sessions I've ever done. I say that because it was uh, traditional culture being brought into a Manhattan studio with everything you can imagine about... Uh, way people were dressed, their wives and girlfriends were there, there were lots of food served, there was cultural cuisine, and it was such a warm family of men. You couldn't help but uh, say you were fortunate being there. Wonderful. Um, well, Vic, my co-pilot here, and I have been you know, fans of your work and your name appearing uh, in the credits of many of the most seminal records, um, you know, Vic, can you can you just give a little re- recap for our listeners how many uh, wonderful recordings this man has achieved? Well, I hope I do it justice. Uh, from what we've gathered, Richard himself has over three thousand credits, uh, both as a sideman and as an instrumental uh, band leader himself. Everybody from Sarah Vaughan, Eric Dolphy, to obviously Pharrell Sanders, Jack McDuff. I mean, the the list just goes on and on and on. I think it's I think we need about four hours just to give him credit for all his wonderful work. I, I thought that was a great selection that you chose, Ben, for the first track just because, you know, nineteen sixty nine there was so much change in America. Sir, I'd love to understand how you were brought into that studio session yourself. You wanna know why how I was brought into that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how did you first hook up with Pharaoh and all the all the other working musicians on this great album? And uh... Well, I imagine it's like any other community. You've seen the people who are somewhat like you are and what you are about and how the music is performed. So you seek that kind of uh, association with the music and the person. Sal Sanders has been a, an admirable person in the way he plays, which is very, very black. And that's what we all were gathered around was our music, blackness in the music. Absolutely. And that is a wonderful cut. It's drenched in culture. In the background, we have the Eric Dolphy um, record that uh, you were part of. Um, was that an entirely different experience? No, it was uh, similar, but individual. And this was a period in your life when you were in New York, is that correct? Yes. And tell us a little bit about what was going on there, because Vic and I were talking pre the show and just trying to imagine, obviously being from <clears throat> you know an, another generation and, and we have never seen anything as transformative as you know straight jazz moving into free form. And you were there active in one of the most prolific periods of, of music's history. And actually then you went on to become, you know, a very you know, serious academic in the, in the space. So you, your view is really treasured on this. How, how, how did that transformation happen? And did it feel like it was happening over a short period of time? Or did it, did it feel like it was a steady progression? What do you mean by transformation? Just in terms of the ability to, you know, communicate through music from, you know, big band, jazz, and, you know, the, the kind of entertaining... Uh, jazz of old 
Um, obviously, rock and roll came along and changed things, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on. But you know, your experience as a player has, has really spread across. Uh, well, your latitude has reached all of these different areas. So, did you feel there was a transformation? I didn't feel any transformation because, to me, it was all one and the same with different individuals participating to the kettle. Let's move on. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days because your, your career has been fascinating. We're going to touch on some of those seminal records. But, um, you know, you went on to uh, become an academic and a professor in music, helping kids and students uh, learn fantastic skills such as improvisation. Did you feel that was a natural path for you? And, uh, you know, did, did you feel the need to, you know, connect with a younger generation of music players? Because you've obviously connected with so many professionally in your in your in your life i just wanted to sort of catch up with you on what your what your relationship with musicians and and music is like these days are you still you know active and in performance well i felt the need to uh share what i had experienced with another generation that's wonderful i think it was time to, to share what i was learning through what i wanted them to learn and through them, I learned what to teach them, because at some time, the student becomes the teacher. So it was, uh, it was a calling that I thought I should answer to. I just retired last week. Well, huge congratulations. Retired from the university. Not anything else in music. You just touched on some really interesting points there and I think you know you're one of these you're really like a religious leader to uh, to musician uh, music wannabes and music fans like Vic and I can you give us a couple of your guiding principles what do you you know when you when you see say that the student becomes a teacher and you know what what should we what should I be teaching my kids about music in your view well let's say it this way you have lots of you in general have lots of skills and lots of experiences that gives you a vast resource repertoire. But she never called on to use all of it unless a student presents you with a problem that they have. Then you look around and see what it is that I can teach that student. So that student is teaching you basically what they need to know without realizing it. It's almost like, say, a new mother learns to be a mother by the way her baby asks for help. Right. Food, changing his diaper, or something like that. So I see it as a, an exchange. A student becomes teacher, teacher becomes student. But just to, just to narrow, hone in on one area of, of particular interest to, to me, I'm just going to be selfish and say it, um, improvisation. Now, not many people can do that. You know, th this is a talent. This is. Do you think people can learn the art of improv improvisation, or do you think they just have it or they don't? Well, the way I see it, improvisation is the key ingredient of the jazz. So I encourage my students to pay attention to what they have been listening to all of their lives, which is different melodies. Simple melodies that their mother sang to them as a nursery rhyme. I tell them that what they were singing was an improvisation that was put down to go into the next generation. So any melody that you've heard, first off, was an improvisation. Right, it started there. Improvisation was like so much that they kept the melody and played it over again. And I teach them how to uh, know their chords and how, with the chords and scales, they're improvising. Like a scale is an improvisation. If you go into the different modes of that scale, you're improvising. Beethoven did this a lot. Yeah. So I, I try to make them do the improvisation. It's not a word to fear. 
I said a little thing to do with two notes or more. That's really and then cool. They're improvising. And do you ever, when when someone's improvising, do you ever kind of stop them when you're teaching them and say, you know what you just did there? You just played me back a really basic major chord and in different in a different way. And do, do you help people unpick it that way as well? Any kind of way I can get the point across. <laughs> Wonderful. Vic, you had a question. Yeah, Mr. Davis, this is a real treat to listen to you talk about the art of improvisation because I think you're actually speaking to the core of life and how we get along as human beings. And when I think of jazz music, I think of no other freer form expression of letting the music take the musician sometimes where it needs to go. And uh, I would love to learn a little bit more about why you ended up on the double bass, um, as opposed to some of the other instruments. Well, <clears throat> I was always in favor of the sound of the bass before I ever started to play it. And I noticed that when I saw the bands in the theaters, that the bass there was sort of in the background and wasn't standing out. And I figured that because I was a very shy kid. And I didn't want to stand out. Of course I got I got over that, but that was well it was that was attractive to me. Now that's amazing. If and if, if I'm not mistaken, you and your siblings were very active in a very musical family growing up. Um, I think some of the things we read online is some of your first musical experiences were in your early teenage years. Um, but did you, with regards to the bass and your experience of it and seeing it live, were there certain players and cats that you you would hear like on like on the phonograph or on the radio, and you just really yeah. like their sound? Sure. That time was a Tisket of Basket, Ellis Fitzgerald, String Fruit, uh, Billy Holiday. Wow. And mostly Duke Ellington. Mm-hmm. And I was crazy about what he was doing because I liked his bass player, Jimmy Blanton. So that's a. Plus, there was music always in my neighborhood in the backyards and alleys, you'd hear somebody strumming on a guitar. So that was very attractive, too. Now, did you ever get a chance to, uh, when you were growing up, uh, so you grew up in the Chicago area, right? Yes. And before moving to New York, I know that Duke used to spend quite a lot of time playing some of the it clubs in the Chicago area. Did you get a chance to see him when you were a young man and growing up? Falling in love oh, with yeah. that? Oh, yeah. At that time, he would come to the theaters. They bring the whole band to a local theater. So I saw them there. In the 60s, the theaters uh, went out because television came in. So, Mr. Davis, I mean, you know, we were just listening in the in the background there to um, a little bit of uh, the Soul Source record from Cal Jader, um, who himself has, you know, had a very interesting musical career progressing through different instruments and obviously from drums. With Dave Brubaker. Is that what I'm hearing in the background? Yeah, it's it's just sitting there and tinkling away in the background. We're, we're, we're surrounded by vinyl records today, so we're just sort of picking them up and throwing them on. But yes, you've got yeah. a bit of, a bit of Afro Blue we just heard there. Um, can you tell us what it was like working on these sessions and um, working with some of these fantastic musicians? That you know, the, the list of credentials on here is incredible with Willie Bobo and, and Donald Bird and everyone else appearing on this record. How, how, how did these come to these happenings come together? Well, I remember a contractor who contracts musicians called me to do that date. And that's how a lot of that went. Oh, great. The artist says he wants, uh, she wants a certain musician, and a contractor calls that person and hires them for the session. Fantastic. So it really was about schedules and making sure the right players were available at the right time. Is that right? That's what it was. It sounds so clinical like that, but you know, these wonderful pieces of art that we have in our houses, um, you know, we're kind of like, you know, the musical equivalent of doctor's appointments. (laughs) A lot of that went on in New York 
uh, they would call you a, a recording artist because you were recording with so many different people and you were very adaptable. But it was a gold rush of sorts, I guess, as well, because this music was taken off in all corners of the world, right, at this time. Say it again slowly. Um, did, it feels a bit like it was a gold rush of sorts because the music was, you know, between the, you know, the charts being established in the mid-50s throughout the 60s, this was starting to really blow up all over the world. Speaking of these recording sessions, I'm just going to take over and ask you a question. Um, as a musician, is there a moment in your session where you just know you are onto something just absolutely incredible and magical that maybe goes even beyond the compositions in front of you and you realize you've made something wonderful? Or is there always a little bit of fear that you just don't know what's going to be on the recording? Because, you know, Ben and I, we have these albums in the studio and we're looking at them and, you know, they're just wonderful tracks. But I would love to hear your perspective on if you knew it was wonderful while it was happening. Well, for some reason, the magic of that, that it all becomes a happening. And you can feel it when it begins to uh, come together. One person flies on the experiences of another and then with that combination of experiences it all just comes together yeah and you know what's beautiful about jazz music is the ability to re-listen an album time and time and time again and hear something new uh yeah each time each time and i guess that comes back to richard's point about the ability to improvise right the magic is in the ability to uh work together and pick up on your friends cues and uh be able to swing together in a studio for a couple hours in uh you know in midtown the main thing is that you have to always listen and you have at least three hours to listen and record an acceptable 15 minutes of music. Three hours. That's incredible. And and do you feel like today's players and the and the young people that you've seen coming through over the over the last few years, do you think they're experiencing a, a similar thing in their world today, or is it more difficult for the the modern musician? It's the same thing. Today it seems to take a long time to come up with something that is accepted as a finished product. Right. And sometimes that would go go into days. But that's going back to the 1980s. Right. When that was happening. Today I can't answer for. Okay, understood. But are you, are you pleased with the uh, the level of musicology or musicianship that you're seeing in the students? Are they? I mean, there are some great modern players out there, right? I mean, you only have to look at people like Esperanza Spalding and, you know, some of these wonderful players that, that are really trying to work real music and live music and, and with the influences of jazz music into their into their modern interpretations. Are you, are you in, encouraged by what you see? Yeah. Some great players out there. Great. Another good thing is that there are more women getting uh, noticed. It's far more acceptable now and it's, it's far more celebrated. Well, absolutely. And I think, Richard, how, how long were you um, touring and playing uh, with Sarah, with Sarah Vaughn? Five years. I, w I would love to know a little bit more of what that was like, speaking of great voices and great female uh, champions of this wonderful art we call jazz. Sarah is basically the embodiment of it for me when I think about it. So five years of touring and recording, what was she like? Did she give you any great career advice? And what was it like just hanging out and it making wonderful music? Playing with her was like going to a university for study. I always say, when people ask me what university that I go to, I say the University of Sarah. It's within that field. There was so much music that I learned from. 
during that time he was a theorist. We never really talked about the music. We just did it. Yeah. Jimmy Jones was the pianist. Roy Haynes, the drummer. If you're surrounded with that kind of a talent, you've got to learn something.
I think we should talk about one thing, if that's okay, which is the uh, the, the, the bridge that I think you as a player uh, created between what we know as jazz music and, and you know, improvised music, but also into rock music. Uh, you, of course, played on one of the most celebrated records of all time, Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there? And I'd love to know, you know, how you felt about that period of time when, uh, you know, rock music and, and all these kind of, the, the last British invasion uh, took place. I'd rather not talk about him. Okay. Turns out to be just kind of a strange fellow. Okay, okay. I can just say that, I can just say that I was with three people of my choice, which is uh, Berlin, the guitarist, Connie Kay, the drummer, Warren Smith, the vibraphonist. And we were the nucleus of that particular CD that you talked about. Okay. And uh, Van Martin had nothing to do with it bringing it coming together because he was isolated from us physically and spiritually. Interesting. So we just grabbed the, grabbed the horns of the bull and did what we did. Absolutely. I mean, I was admiring your bass work on that title track uh, actually lots, lots, today. Lots of people do. Lots of people have said what you just said. But that was just something I felt to do, and that's what I did. Well, that's it's perfect. You know, actually, the interesting thing about the guitar work and the bass work on there is you're playing so high up on the bass. I couldn't tell if it was a, a, a an acoustic guitar at some moments. And this led me to think of a question to ask you, which was, obviously, you've played upright bass for the, for the majority of your career. Did you ever flirt with or enjoy playing electric bass, or did you just decide that wasn't for you? I played electric bass for a short time, but that was not my uh, favorite position to be in. Yes, Mr. Davis, one last question. I know that uh, obviously you are recently retired from your academic role, and I read online that you are working on an autobiography. Is that correct? Yes, I am. That's good to hear. That is wonderful. I can't wait to read it. And uh, not to put any pressure on you, sir, but uh, should we expect that in the next year or two? I would agree with that. Well, we hope you're going to come to uh, Los Angeles where we can arrange an event for you maybe, or we can get some of your biggest fans and influential fans from Los Angeles to come and uh, help with the launch of that. We, we would love to be part of that. Okay. Thank, I appreciate that. Thank you, sir, for a lifetime of wonderful music, many more years to come, and for your uh, your time today. It means the world to Ben and I. Absolutely. I, I was going to just close by saying we often, uh, we're, we're very lucky and blessed how many wonderful musicians that we are fans of have uh, agreed to spend a few minutes with us talking about their records and, and their relationship with music. And Mr. Davis, this is up there with uh, with the, the best of them. So thank you. Well, thank you. I look forward to getting it. <clears throat> All right. Well, thank you for your time and your insights. It's been a real treasure. And um, we're going we're gonna to play a couple more minutes of your music. But thank you for your time today and in, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank Thank you. 
selection of uh mr richard davis on the bass guitar there so uh we'll do this in a in a random order because we're just covered in lp rec- uh covers here uh that was the dynamic duo uh jimmy and wes and the um i guess you could say the title track james and wes uh of course with um mr richard davis on bass incredible album it's one of the finest 
I think before that we had Latin Shadows uh, with the one and only Shirley Scott. I think we throw in a little Jimmy McGriff in the big band. Absolutely. And then keep going in this order. Oh, that that record has just gone on my want list. This Soft Samba by uh, Gary McFarland is, you said that you picked that up for a dollar? Probably about a dollar. Maybe less. I mean, it's wonderful, you know. You didn't overpay. That was just wonderful. Versions of the Beatles songs. You know what's incredible about this album and a lot of these wonderful originals that we have in the studio today is, you know, we're blessed to have a a guest like Richard on the phone and then we got to start digging in our own collections or some of our buddy shops and you just start coming across stuff that you haven't played in a while. Absolutely. This Gary album is definitely one of those. It's up there for me. Uh, We also had um, the track Smoke Signals. Um off the Silver Cycles record by one of Vinyl Crisis' favorite artists, Eddie Harris. The one and only. Um, okay, great. Well, look, it's been a fantastic show. Thanks for all the insights. Um, thank you, John, on production skills. Uh, thanks to my co-pilot, Vic Coretti. Uh, we're going to be back here again soon with another fine guest. We're going to play out the, sh- the show with uh, Mr. Quincy Jones and Gula Matari, of course, featuring the one and only Richard Davis on bass. And um, thank you, sir, Richard Davis, for joining us today.
You've been listening to Vinyl Crisis, featuring rare and eclectic all-vinyl musical treasures. Catch Vinyl Crisis live every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Dash Radio's What the Funk. And catch the replays on Dash Radio's Cool Jazz Station, Fridays at 10 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And replays on What the Funk air Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 10 p.m. Eastern. Here on Dash Radio.